High atop one of the hills which ring the teeming metropolis of Gotham City, a large house rears its bulk against the dark sky. Outwardly, there's nothing to distinguish this house from many others. But deep in the cavernous basements of this house, in a chamber hewn from the living rock of the mountain, is the strange, dimly lighted, mysteriously secret Bat's Cave, hidden headquarters of America's number one crime fighter, Batman. Yes, Batman, clad in the somber costume which has struck terror to the heart of many a swaggering denizen of the underworld. Batman, who even now is pondering the plans of a new assault against the forces of crime. A crushing blow against evil in which he will have the valuable aid of his young, two-fisted assistant, Robin the Boy Wonder. They represent American youth who love their country and are glad to fight for it. Wherever crime raises its ugly head to strike with the venom of a maddened rattlesnake, Batman and Robin strike also. Trennis Magnus, Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I've been doing lately is working my way through a series of comic books that feature Batman versus Joker stories, and the reason for that is because we've got a solo Joker movie that's coming up pretty soon. I'm, I, I for one, am very excited about it. I'm very interested to see what's coming, and I felt like talking about some Batman versus Joker stories, and so that's what I've been doing lately. And in fact, we're actually nearing the end of the uh, this uh, mini-series that I've been working my way through with all of these Batman versus Joker stories. It's actually going to be concluding next week, but that's next week. Now, as it goes for this week, the comic book that I'm going to be talking about today is Batman number one, and I mean the real Batman number one. None of this new 52 or Rebirth or any of that other stuff. This is the real deal. Now, sometimes in life what you need is a little bit of, I don't know, guidance maybe? A lot of Batman movies and, and uh, animated series and, and all of those sorts of things have been made over the decades, right? And one of the one of the outcomes of that, intentionally or unintentionally, is there is a ton of Batman music that's that's out there that if you run a podcast, you can utilize whenever you do a Batman show. And what I find is that different different themes which is to say different musical themes, work best for Batman depending on the era in comics that we're talking about, right? So depending on uh, the story that you're reading, maybe the Shirley Walker theme from Batman the Animated Series, maybe that's what you need to need to use, right? Or maybe what you need to use is the, the Neil Hefty theme from uh, the Batman TV show in the 60s, right? Maybe that's what you need to use. Or maybe it's more of a Danny Elfman kind of kind of comic book, you know, on and on and on. There are options, and, and, and that's the point. 
But one of the sort of musical blind spots in Batman's history that I struggled with, guys, I'm not kidding, for years and years and years. One of the musical blind spots for Batman has always been the Golden Age, right? Because there's really not any particular piece of music that's associated with Batman in the Golden Age, right? And there's really no existing piece of music that, at least in my opinion, that can be associated with Batman in the Golden Age. You know, um, Danny Elfman, Hans Zimmer, Elliot Goldenthal, Shirley Walker, Christopher Drake, none of these people, and you know, and I guess we could also add Neil Hefty to that list, none of these people have ever really done music that I think is tonally appropriate for the Golden Age Batman, right? Not sure if anyone else agrees with that, but nobody else has to agree with that. I have to agree with that, and that's really the first, last, and only thing that matters, right? There's really not a, like, a single piece of music, at least in the Batman oeuvre, that, in my opinion, can satisfactorily serve the tone of the Golden Age Batman, right? And so I was kind of at a loss for a long time there, like, what music should I use? Because I knew I wanted to use uh, some kind of, something other than, just my uh, my main musical theme for Trennis Magnus Punch's reality. And so to, to make a short story long, what I ended up doing was listening to uh, the theme music from uh, uh, the uh, 1940s uh, Batman serial. Basically, the, that little bit that started off this episode. Basically, listen to that. And I recognize the piece of music that's uh, played in there as a piece by Wagner. Um, I believe it's uh, uh, Tannhäuser. I, I don't speak Sie Deutsch, so I'm kind of at a loss to, to get the pronunciation right, but I believe it's called, uh, or at least I believe it's pronounced Tannhäuser, right? And um, like like prelude to, or, or something. I fucking don't know, right? So anyway, it's a Wagner piece, and this much I, I, I knew. And I thought, you know what? Number one, I guess that's a really practical decision for somebody to have made back in the 1940s when that serial was produced. You know, I mean, those things were really produced, you know, on the cheap. And so it may, it would have made a lot of sense to just take something that's in the public domain that you don't have to pay royalties out for and just use that. And Wagner is actually a pretty good choice for that. The other thing is, you know, Wagner actually really does work like really well for uh, for the Golden Age Batman, right? Now, not necessarily everything Wagner has ever done is... I mean, like, I don't think Ride of the Valkyries would work very well for the Golden Age Batman, or I don't think uh, Lohengrin, Prelude to Act 3, is going to work very well with uh, the Golden Age Batman, but other Wagner pieces are going to work crazy well. And so that ended up being not only appropriate, but in a weird kind of way, also like the inspiration for this episode, or at least partially the inspiration. So anyway, I'm not sure if, you know, seven or eight or however long uh, it's been, seven or eight minutes of talk about music is what any of you guys were necessarily bargaining for when you started this episode. But nevertheless, that is the hand that you've been dealt. But to kind of get things going here a little bit, what I'm going to be doing is talking about, like I say, I'm going to be talking about Batman number one. And 
the thing is, I'm not sure, even as I record this, I'm not sure if I'm going to talk about the entire issue or if I'm going to talk just about um, the uh, first Joker story that's in here. So I'm thinking what I might do is uh, put the Joker story, the first story in this comic, put that under the microscope, and then just kind of, you know, not necessarily gloss over the other stories, but just kind of, eh, work my way through them, but not necessarily go into, like, overly laborious detail about it. You know what I mean? So, anyway. <sighs> this first story, it doesn't actually have a title. In fact, many of them don't. And so, you know, basically, I guess it's sort of up to the fans, or at least some kind of fan consensus, to determine the title for this story, which, by the way, is reprinted in uh, The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told. Um, and by the way, in The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told, this story, is, uh, which does not ha have a title, is titled, in the table of contents, it's titled, Batman versus the Joker. I've seen other sources call it simply the Joker or the first Joker story or whatever. I mean, I, like I say, there's no consensus on what the title of this thing needs to be. You know, not like Batman versus the Vampire, where that's not the official title of that two-part story. But nevertheless, everyone seems to have accepted Batman versus the Vampire as the title of that story. So, I don't know. It's just interesting, but whatever. The synopsis is as follows. The Joker, a grinning, clown-faced killer, announces his crimes over the radio, threatening to kill several men and steal valuable items from them. When he's successful, the underworld is angry that he has upstaged them. Brute Nelson, a gangster, plans a trap for the Joker, but the Joker avoids the trap and kills Nelson. Batman, having an interest in the, uh, in the case, is nearly killed himself when he attempts to pursue the Clown Prince of Crime. Batman and Robin watch the site of the Joker's next attack where the Joker has killed Judge Drake. Robin follows the Joker back to an old house but gets captured. Batman arrives in time to save Robin from being injected with Joker venom, which is to say a poison which kills the victim while leaving a smile on the victim's face. The Joker escapes again, but only temporarily as Batman tracks him down once again. This time, the dynamic duo are able to take down the villain and send him to prison. The end. So, what did I think? Well, going right from the beginning here, you just don't really see, uh, like, page ones like this. I mean, first off, the cover of this, uh, of this comic is... It's pretty iconic in its own right, but apart from the fact that there's number one in the upper left corner, there's really nothing remarkable about this cover. You know, there's nothing in here to, uh, to suggest that this comic book, apart from being uh, Batman number one, you know, the first issue of Batman's own ongoing title, there's nothing on this cover to suggest just how historically important this comic book really is. And I guess what I mean by that is... Nothing on the cover says that this is the first appearance of the Joker or Catwoman. And if I'm not mistaken, this is Hugo Strange's first appearance as well. So this, but even if it's not, even if this is like Hugo Strange's second or third or whatever appearance, it's still the first appearance of the Joker and Catwoman and in this comic. 
and it's just interesting that nothing on the cover necessarily gives that away. Now, in the interest of, I guess, contextualizing uh, comics and evaluating them on the terms on which they were originally presented, the idea of a comic book ever being worth money was a concept so foreign back in 1940 as to be absurdly laughable. It would be funny to people uh, back in 1940 if you showed them an issue of Batman number one and said, hey, someday this comic book is going to be worth a shit ton of money, right? People would have laughed at you, laughed. And so maybe it's just completely normal that nothing on this, uh, on, on this cover like hypes up the fact that this is the first appearance or at least an early appearance of some like really fucking major characters in the Batman universe. And you know what? It's even possible that, you know, back in 1940, the creators of this comic book themselves would not have believed you. They would have laughed in your face if you told them how important to history, really, or at least American history, or at least American pop culture history, how important this comic book would ultimately come to be, you know? I think they wanted to be successful, but I don't think they necessarily were setting out to create uh, American myth, you know? But damned if that's not what they did. So anyway, getting into the story proper though, uh, this is uh, a partial splash page that starts off the story. It's basically the Joker looking over his shoulder at the camera while he's holding cards. A Batman playing card, a Robin playing card, and of course, a Joker playing card. And, you know, I just, I kind of miss uh, captions like this in comics. Well, I say I miss them. They, these were never fashionable in my lifetime. But I guess, I guess maybe what I'm trying to say is I appreciate uh, kind of pulpy little... Uh, caption boxes that start off a comic book story because you just don't get this anymore. You know, you really don't. And even if you do, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just that the tone of them is just somehow off, but whatever it is that's introducing the story in the unlikely event that you get one, it's almost like it's a little meta or self-referential or ironic or what. Whereas these caption boxes, these were you know, kind of breathless and, and I don't know, like they're just kind of thrilling to read, but at the same time, they're also very sincere. You know, they, you know, the writers of this comic wanted to get you stoked. All right. They wanted to get you up for the game. They wanted you to be excited as you read this comic. And, you know, a major part of that is the, this little introductory text box that says, once again, a master criminal stalks the city streets. A criminal weaving a web of deaths about him, leaving stricken victims behind wearing a ghastly clown's grin. The sign of death from the Joker. Only two dare to oppose him. Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder. Two to battle the grim jester called the Joker. A battle of wits with swift death, the only compromise. And I don't know. I mean, it's like that's I called it pulpy a little while ago, and I'm not actually sure if that's necessarily the best way to describe it. It's almost like this is the introduction for a radio program, like an old timey uh, radio program. 
And for those of you who aren't really uh, familiar with old time radio guys, some of that stuff is fucking amazing. You know, it really is. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a tone and a style of acting that you just don't get anymore anywhere else. Even in, uh, like animation, they just have very grounded and realistic types of performance. And I don't know, you could just imagine some, uh, you know, breathless radio announcer who's trying to hype up this, you know, this episode of this radio show that you're about to hear. He might read something like this, you know, and I just think it's writing like this. I'm almost tempted to say is kind of like a a lost art in a way. So I don't know. But anyway, basically, um, to kind of move past the partial splash here a little bit, there are two panels at the bottom of the uh, page here. And it's basically just these two old timers. They're sitting around in their house and they're basically just, uh, listening to the radio. And I don't know why. Certainly it can't be because of the art, because it's the art really all through this comic isn't very detailed. You know, my guess is, you know, deadlines on this thing must have been just fucking insane. And so a lot of this art, it does kind of have a little bit of a sketchy, sort of incomplete, I don't know, just kind of slapdash quality to it. It was brushed out the door. And so I don't know why, but ever since I read this uh, story when I was a kid, I could just picture, you know, two old timers, you know, this old married couple, they're just sitting around the house together and they're listening to, I don't like organ music or something like that on the radio. And I don't know why, but there's just something that's like just very vivid for me about this. Uh, it's, it's very honest. It's, it's just easy to kind of fill in the blanks that, you know, these people have probably been married to each other for so long. They probably don't even have like real conversations with each other anymore. They just kind of have, uh, this kind of confusing system of, uh, of, uh, gestures and, uh, grunts and maybe like shorthand and stuff. I mean, these people have been married to each other for a very long time, you know? And I don't know why, but it's just, they, they barely have any dialogue at all, but it's like, there's just something about, maybe it's just like their dialogue. I don't know, but it's, um, the, the little caption box here says it is night in most homes. People listen to their radios and the wife says, my, isn't it peaceful sitting at home like this? And then, uh, her husband who looks like he's maybe getting a little ripe there, kind of reaching retirement age, uh, he says, nothing like it. Hmm. Static. And I think that's the only dialogue they have. Actually, I'm going to flip over to them. Yeah. Um, that's almost all the, the dialogue they have. They don't have very much more, but for some reason, you know, you could just, you could just picture, uh, them. Maybe this guy is somewhere in his early fifties, which if so, in theory, that could make him, a World War One vet, if this is 1940 and he's in his 50s, or at least he might have been or could have been a World War One vet. And, you know, just imagining the life that these two might have had with each other. I'll be the first to admit, I could be reading way too fucking much into this handful of panels here. It's really meant just to set up some exposition and stuff and set the immediate tone of 
not what the story is, but what it was. And then the Joker is going to come along and completely disrupt. I don't know, but there's, I don't know. It's just part of me. I actually kind of wish that like we could get more of them, you know, and I don't know why it's just, it's just kind of neat. I don't, I, I can't even really explain it. I'm just sitting here mumbling. So anyway, the next panel says, uh, the caption says, suddenly the music is cut off a voice, a toneless voice drones. And then we get the Joker's dialogue. It says tonight at precisely 12 o'clock midnight, I will kill Henry Claridge and steal the Claridge diamond. Do not try to stop me. The Joker has spoken. And then the music comes back on, on the radio. And then old wife, he says, Henry, did you hear Henry Claridge, the millionaire to be killed? The famous diamond stolen. And then a uh, kind of grizzled husband says, ha, huh, that's just a gag. Like that fellow who scared everybody with that story about Mars the last time. Ha <laughs> ha, pay no attention to it, dear. And I don't know why, I just kind of want to get more of this dialogue, but it sounds to me like he's making a reference to Orson Welles and his adaptation of War of the Worlds that he did as a news piece on his radio show. And basically the thinking goes by a lot of people that people listen to that radio show and they believe that a real Martian invasion was taking place. And if you read like the contemporaneous newspaper accounts of that story, like in the aftermath of it and everything that happened and all the trouble and whatnot that Wilson, uh, Orson Welles got in, that's what the newspapers were saying. But a lot of people these days think that that was something, basically you could put it down to fake news, right? That didn't actually happen to quite the extent that the newspapers reported. Now, to be fair, the Orson Welles radio show, it was very highly rated. A lot of people were listening to it. And it is undeniable that a certain amount of people heard that and believed it to be true. But basically what what the news media of the time, what they reported is that, you know, uh, thousands and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people believed it to be true. And there was this mass panic in the streets and stuff. And, you know, that's very much, you know, like the tone that the contemporaneous newspapers of that time were going for. But the fact is, guys, I mean, you need, you guys need to understand that, it, I mean, it's a little bit Captain Obvious to say that, you know, things were different back then, but fucking they really were different back then. And back then, newspapers, um, or I should say at least the staff of newspapers, they considered themselves to be the only real game in town. If you want to get your news, you read a newspaper. That's just the way the way that it is. And all of a sudden, here comes radio, which is a completely new format. It's completely unproven. No one completely knows even what to do with it just yet. And the people who had worked in newspapers for all those decades didn't especially like radio. And so the thinking goes, did they oversell the mass panic and overreaction that people had to Orson Welles? Um, sort of as a way of taking a cheap shot at, let's face it, a rival and some would say superior news format. It's tough to say. Uh, 
But the bottom line is, a lot of people these days are, they think that the the reports of mass panic and people running around in the street and confusion and they're just out of their minds and fear and all this stuff, that didn't really happen. Or if it did, not quite to the extent that the newspapers of the time would have led you to believe. And guys, I mean, I've, I'm kind of on the record at this point long, loud, and often for being a skeptic of mainstream news media. But even I would admit that, you know what, things really have gotten better. I mean, we've come a long way since, um, since the days of William Randolph Hearst, for example, right? So, I don't know. Whatever you want to make of all that. And again, I could be reading entirely too much into this story, but I'm thinking that whoever wrote this comic, or at least this Joker story in this comic, I think maybe they read the newspaper accounts of the Orson Welles uh, War of the Worlds radio show and maybe took that stuff a little bit too seriously. So then again, they're the ones who lived through it, and I didn't, so who knows? But I'm just saying that people who live today who seem like they're a lot smarter than I am, they're a little bit skeptical of all of these overblown reports about panic in the streets and all that stuff that has nothing to do with the story that I'm going to talk about right now, so I'm just going to go ahead and get on with it. Basically, from there, you know, uh, we we cut to uh, the home of Henry Claridge, and wouldn't you know, at the stroke of 12 o'clock, he keels over dead, and it's right here on page two that we get our first we get our first real, apart from the splash page, you understand, I'm talking about in story, we get our first little harbinger of who the Joker is and what he's all about with the uh, the grin that's plastered on, on a Claridge's keister there. And basically what it comes down to is this. We hear the Joker in this story, again, apart from the splash page, we hear the Joker in this story before we see him. We see the effects of his crimes before we see him. I mean, this is a, a really big introduction that the Joker's getting here, you know? Usually, uh, uh, the villain of the piece is going to be introduced on page one, generally page two, at the latest, you know? But here, we get over to page three, and even on page three, we actually get a calling card for the Joker first, a Joker playing card, and then it's on page three, panel five, that we get our first glimpse of the Joker, and the Joker is just kind of speaking out loud, talking to nobody, except the reader, I suppose, and basically explaining how he was able to uh, kill Henry Claridge, in spite of the fact that uh, Claridge had, let's see, it looks like two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven cops, eleven uniformed police officers that were protecting him at the time, how the Joker was still able to get to him, right? And overall, I, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but to me, this is just a little bit clever, you know, kind of like this. So anyway, at the bottom of page three, we get a conversation between uh, uh, Bruce and Dick. And Dick is basically asking, I think, a pretty logical question. He's like, OK, guy, which is to say, Bruce, shouldn't we go after this this Joker dude? And I mean, Batman and Robin. This is totally their job to go out there and take down supervillains as they come along. Right. And so the logical, the logical question to ask 
and Dick asks it as, shouldn't we go out there and do that? And Bruce answers, no, not yet. The time isn't right. But when we do, and then that's it. You know, we flip over to page four and then that's, that's the end of it. Now, here on, this is uh, page four, uh, we get, I don't know if this, I don't know this to be true, but I get the idea that this is the same couple, the same old married couple that we saw at the beginning of this story. Uh, we get a little bit more dialogue with them, at least I think it's them, on page four, panel one. Uh, they're still sitting around reading newspapers and listening to the radio, and it's obviously a different night, number one, because they're wearing different clothes as they were last time, and number two, the caption box says it's another night, but it, to me it's kind of clever framing uh, for this for this story to keep calling back to the same two civilians, you know, but it's just, it's not really apparent that these really are the same two civilians just because the art in this comic is so sketchy or something. I don't know. So anyway, but basically though, the Joker announces on the radio that he's going to kill Jay Wilde and steal the Ronker's Ruby. The Joker has spoken. Wah, 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 wah. And... basically announcing that he's going to kill this guy at exactly 10 o'clock. Um, the old man says, it's him again, the Joker. And then wifey says, it's nine now. At 10 o'clock, that fiend will kill Jay Wilde. And here again, the victim is protected by a shit ton of cops and everything. And that doesn't stop him from doing anything. The room fills up with uh, poisonous gas kills everybody in the room, including Jay Wilde, and then the Joker, who is hiding in a suit of armor this entire time, um, basically comes out, explains to the reader everything that's just happened, and then that's that. So one of the things that this does, though, this, this particular murder, is show that the Joker is actually very creative, right? He killed... Uh, Henry Claridge by uh, basic uh, he, he basically uh, stuck him with a dart 24 hours earlier announced the murder even though in a certain sense the murder had already been completed by then and then at the stroke of midnight Claridge keeled over dead right he and the Joker used a dart to do it 24 hours earlier here the Joker changes things up a bit he still telegraphs the murder, but he carries out the murder in a different way. And what I sort of like about it is there are really two different murder methods that are that are here on page four. Number one, there's a there's a dart the Joker used to take out Jay Wilde. And then he filled the room with gas so that he could kill the cops. And so it just kind of shows that, you know, how creative the Joker is. You know, he doesn't necessarily do the same thing twice. And it, I don't know. I just, even as a kid, I just really like this, that, you know, this is how dangerous the Joker is, you know, that he can, he can advertise his murder, you know, the threat of his murder so far in advance, and yet no one can do anything to stop it because that's, that's just how effective he is at, at, at killing people, you know? 
and it really does a lot to sell the menace and the danger that the you know the that the Joker poses, just the threat that the Joker represents. You know, if it wasn't apparent before, it should be now. You know, and I kind of like that. And then getting into page five, this is where the the story really does kind of start picking up steam a little bit, because Brute Nelson, um, he basically sees the Joker as a challenger. You know, his own gang was going to try stealing the Ronkers Ruby for themselves, and the Joker got there first. So Brute Nelson makes a point of circulating. Uh, among the the underworld that, you know, he thinks that the Joker is a yeller rat. He's going to get the Joker, you know, and all that. And I kind of like that idea, you know, that these, you know, these uh, criminals and murderers and crooks and hoodlums and whatnot, just because they're in the same line of work, that doesn't make them on the same team, you know? And there's conflict, not just between them and the law, but they have conflict with each other and there are grudges that exist there, you know, and it's not like the Legion of supervillains where everyone's on the same team just because they have similar enemies, you know? And I don't know. I, I don't know why, but you know, that's, that has always played for me a lot better than people, you know, the forces of evil joining together just cause, Hey, we're both forces of evil. Let's team up and we'll be best buddies, you know? And I don't know. So, this whole thing, you know, goings on not only with uh, the Claridge murder, the Jay Wilde murder, but now Brute Nelson's threat and the movements that he's going to make against the Joker, that pretty much lights a fire under Bruce Wayne. Now it's time for Batman and Robin to go into action. And so the other thing is that I, I, I kind of like about this is that Batman is, he's taking the Joker seriously right from the start. He doesn't want to take any chances with Robin, at least not right away. So he makes a point of leaving Robin at home while he goes into action all by himself. So sure enough, the Joker catches up with Brute Nelson. Um, Nelson's gang barges into the room. Then Batman barges into the room. There's a huge fight. A shootout ensues. Uh, the Joker blows Brute Nelson away. And then he, uh, he he tries making a getaway. And getting into a page six, you know, this, this issue is commonly, or at least this story, is commonly attributed to Bob Kane as the artist, right? And one of the reasons that I believe that is, I guess, just the questionable quality of the art. You know, there's not a whole lot of detail going on in the art on, on these pages and everything. It's good enough to get the job done, but I wouldn't say that it's really anything all that special. But the other thing is, just from a technical point of view, there are some problems with it, you know? Um, at the bottom of page six in the next to last panel, uh, the Joker is running from the left side of the panel to the right as the Batman pursues him from the left side of the panel to the right. Then in the very next panel, the Joker hops in his flashy red convertible and hauls ass out of there from the uh, right side of the panel to the left. And then on the next page, it's again, left to right, left to right, right to left, right to left, left to right. I mean, the action here, and this is my point, the action here is constantly crossing itself. You know, it's left to right in some panels, right to left in others. And... Honestly, it's tempting to to say that this is a weakness of the art, but 
you know, here again, we do kind of need to contextualize comic books a little bit and say that, you know what, back in 1940, maybe it wasn't generally understood what the right way to, to lay out a comic book page is. You know, that you want to keep, the action can move in whatever direction you want, but you need to keep the action moving in the same direction consistently. And maybe that lesson wasn't generally known back in 1940. You know, I don't know, but um, nevertheless, as a modern comics, uh, as a modern comic book reader, I look at this and I have to recognize this as a flaw, but one of the rules of reading comics is you do need to contextualize the comics that you read and understand that they weren't made yesterday. They were made a long time ago. And those are the terms on which they must be evaluated. Nevertheless, if you were to, and this is the point. If you were to do a comic book like this these days, there are a ton of little no-nos that are going on here that you really should try like hell to avoid. So anyway, whatever you want to make of that. Now, getting into page seven, like I say, the action is going in different directions from one panel to the next. But when you move aside from that, this is really the first physical confrontation that the Joker ever has with the Batman. And it really must be said that the Joker definitely comes out on top here. All right. No two ways about that. He uh, smacks Batman in the jaw, then kicks him in the face. He pushes him off a bridge. And it's pretty obvious that the Joker definitely won this little fight here. Now, Again, we need to contextualize not just this comic. We need to contextualize Batman back to the 1940s. And back in the 1940s, Batman wasn't necessarily a martial arts master. You know, to my knowledge, martial arts never really started coming into uh, Batman's uh, arsenal until sometime in like the late 70s or the early 80s. Basically, just about the time that... Uh, Karate became sort of a trendy thing in the United States. Wouldn't you know? That's about the same time that Batman started. It started coming out that Batman knew martial arts. Maybe the seven. Actually, I say late seven. Now that I think back on it, it may have even been the early to mid seventies. Now that I think back on it, but whatever. The seventies is what I'm is what I'm willing to put my name on. Right? It was the seventies before it was canon that Batman knew all these martial arts and stuff. So before then. He was basically just a two-fisted street fighter, you know? He would beat the piss out of you with his hands, you know? He would, he would just, uh, you know, punch you into oblivion, right? That was his move. Plus, the Joker's car had just crashed and flown off a bridge. And so one could say that maybe Batman is just kind of uh, weak and dazed from having survived this car crash while the Joker is fresh to the fight. And that's how he's able to get the upper hand on Batman, and then push him off the bridge. So that's the way that I choose to look at it. So anyway, moving right along, uh, the Joker announces another murder, this one of Judge Drake. And this isn't, this isn't to steal something or gain something or anything like that. This one is strictly a grudge. Dr uh, Judge Drake once sent the Joker to, uh, to prison. And so because of that, the Joker is going to kill him. That's that. And that's pretty much what happens. Now, this is actually one of the weaker murders in the 
in the story in that there there's basically no police protection really to speak of for Judge Drake or they're kept in a separate room. So the Joker enters the room with Judge Drake disguised as a cop and sticks him with uh, the Joker venom. And that's it. And honestly, I mean, I could see the Joker getting away with this for the Henry Claridge murder, but not for Judge Drake. You know, I don't know. Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, it could be that the police department is kind of short staffed now since the Joker has killed so many of them. I don't know. But the police protection, at least that we see, is pretty minimal. But getting into page, that's page eight. Getting into page nine, the Joker follows, or rather, Robin follows the Joker back to his hideout. The Joker uh, basically gets the drop on Batman. Jeez, uh, I'm fucking up all over the place here. The Joker gets the drop on Robin. Meanwhile, Batman follows Robin back to the Joker's hideout. He arrives just in time to save Robin from getting stuck with Joker venom. Uh, a fight breaks out, then a, then a fire breaks out. Uh, the Joker fires off some uh, Joker gas at Batman. but And this is what the caption box uh, says on page 11. But the Joker has not reckoned with the amazing recu- recuperative powers of the mighty Batman. So it's not really explained how the Batman survives this Joker gas. Even though we see it starting to work on page 10. It's like Batman just shakes it off. I don't know. Anyway, so Batman literally hauls Robin out of the fire. Um, they follow, they they follow the Joker. This is on page eleven. They follow the Joker uh, across town, as Batman explains the Cleopatra necklace that's owned by Otto Drexel. Come on, Robin. There's not a moment to lose with a maniac on the loose. Otto Drexel lives on the penthouse in that building across the street. And Robin says, if we can only get up there before the Joker does, exclamation point. And so we see the Joker trying to break into Otto Drexel's uh, penthouse. Batman swoops into action. Uh, The Joker basically fires off a bunch of uh, uh, bullets at him, which Batman's bulletproof vest protects him from. Uh, He tries to make his escape. He gets intercepted by Robin. And honestly, this is one of the things about Robin back in uh, the Golden Age, especially one might say the Golden Age, that just kind of pisses me off is he just has this really horrible, like, pun type of uh, dialogue whenever he's fighting with these uh, supervillains and whatnot. Um, uh, The Joker uh, scrambles up the side of a building. He sees Robin there. He says, you too. And Robin answers, right, Joker. I'm the ace in the hole. And so Robin, for some reason, chooses that moment to lay down on his back and then kick upwards at the Joker, saying, that's the sock on the head. Or rather, that's for the sock on the head. And I don't know why, but it's just... Some of this dialogue from Robin is just a little bit annoying. He's just kind of bratty, I guess. Anyway, so whatever... Robin knocks Joker's ass off the side of the building, and he would have plummeted to his death if not for the timely intervention of uh, Batman, who reaches out, catches the Joker, breaks his fall, and lays him out with one punch. One punch. And then after that, the Joker gets sent off to jail, 
And in the next to last panel, uh, Dick says, but what I'd like to know is how the victims turned up in that terrible grin. And Bruce's answer to that is some sort of drug that pulled the muscles of the face. The Joker was a clever but diabolical killer. Too clever and too deadly to be free. The next, la or rather the last panel says, they can't keep me here. I know of a way out. The Joker will yet have the last laugh. Wah, 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 wah. And that's pretty much the end of the story. And I don't know, I just, I really like this story. You know, notwithstanding the art uh, by Bob Kane or possibly Jerry Robinson, whoever drew this thing, notwithstanding the fact that the art is a little, uh, I don't know, scra scratchy or sketchy or just incomplete, not all that detailed, notwithstanding that stuff, it, there's, there's a, a real sense of atmosphere and tone with this art. And one of the reasons why I actually tend to think that this was drawn by Bob Kane is just the sheer number of full moons that we see in this issue. And, you know, Bob Kane has kind of a, he has kind of a known fixation for full moons. I don't know why. They are kind of ominous to be sure, but I mean, they pop up several times in every Batman story the guy ever did. And I don't know. So all in all, I just really dig this this uh, story. And like I say, notwithstanding the fact that the art is just kind of rough and crude and it just doesn't even look like it's really finished in a lot of places, it still has a lot of tone and uh, atmosphere to it. And I don't know, just overall, I, I just really dig it. Now there's some other stories uh, in this, in this issue as well. Uh, there's the giants of Dr. Hugo Strange and the uh, synopsis for that, I'm not going to get into blood and guts on this, but the synopsis of it is Dr. Hugo Strange returns with a growth formula that changes asylum patients into 10 foot tall man monsters that wreak havoc on Gotham City. Batman is captured and injected with the serum, but manages to escape and create an antidote. Batman then pilots the bat plane and defeats many of Dr. Hugo Strange's henchmen and some of the monsters. The end. And I don't know, for as scratchy and sketchy and just sort of incomplete as the art was in the Joker story, it's even scratchier and more incomplete, if that's not a contradiction in terms, here in this story, where he, right here on page one, it's like detail is a foreign concept. I mean, we're talking like shades of Jerry Siegel. You know, Jerry Siegel, not Jerry Siegel, sorry, Joe Schuster. Joe Schuster just did not have a whole lot of detail in his art, but you know, and that was me opening a Dr. Pepper, by the way, but for his, uh, for his lack, for his not detail oriented as Joe Schuster's work ever was, this stuff here is even less detailed. So excuse me while I get a sip of my Dr. Pepper. I'm also going to get a drag off my e-cig. All right. Anyway, so this is more of a solo Batman story. We don't really get Robin in it. And there's a sense in which it actually really does kind of work for me. 
at the uh, at the top of page two, we get these uh, panels of uh, Bruce Wayne. He's just sitting there talking to himself. He's overhearing a, uh, or rather, he's listening to a radio broad a news radio broadcast, and he says to himself, "Insane men, criminals, maniacs, and strange meaning Hugo Strange can only add uh, can only add up to one thing: something new in crime, something fantastic and terrible." Very terrible. And it's kind of interesting that back in these days, Bruce Wayne was shown puffing on a pipe. I mean, that would never happen today. But back in those days, I don't know. I mean, my sense of Bruce and basically the kind of image that he has, if you could picture uh, Cary Grant in the Philadelphia story, Bruce Wayne pretended to be what Cary Grant really... Well, not what he really was. I guess what... Cary Grant also pretended to be basically what C.K. Dexter Haven also pretended to be in the Philadelphia story, where he was thought of most people as just kind of this uh, mindless, brainless, hopeless, uh, ambitionless uh, millionaire. He just kind of sat around all day counting his money. But the guy never had a serious thought in his head. And that was uh, an image that C.K. Dexter Haven kind of, sort of, half-ass encouraged in news media. But as the Philadelphia story makes clear, there's a lot more to him than there's a lot more to, to heaven or to Haven than just that, you know, and same thing with Bruce. And so whenever I read these stories, uh, these golden age stories, uh, typically what I do is I just imagine Cary Grant playing Bruce Wayne and I guess that works as well as anything else, but just a, a Cary Grant type of figure, you know, with the pipe and all that stuff, you know, in the robe. The other things that I could just kind of picture Cary Grant doing, saying, dressing in, etc. You know, and that's basically Bruce Wayne's public image. And so I, I don't know why. I just I kind of like that. Take from that whatever you want. So anyway, moving right along, you know, the, the monster men's just start wreaking havoc on Gotham city. There's panic in the streets. It's just pandemonium. And, uh, the Batman moves into action. He gets captured by the monster men. And one of the things that I kind of like about this story, apart from the fact that it's sort of a kind of solo Batman story is that this again is one of those stories that introduces, I can't really say a supernatural element, into the story, but definitely more of a sci-fi type of a thing with, you know, the monster men and mad scientists and stuff like that. I just kind of like that. I think that works really well for Batman. And it's something that isn't really done a whole lot, you know, in, believe it or not, in, in the golden age, you know, it's done some, but not a lot. And when it's done, I think it always turns out really well. So Anyway, all in all, this is just a fun little story, and this is kind of auspicious, you know, for the fact that this is one of the few occasions in the Golden Age when Batman can be shown intentionally taking human life. And he even says, uh, this is on uh, uh, page nine, at the bottom of page nine in the last panel, he's zooming in uh, in uh, the Batplane, and he's opening fire with his machine gun saying, much as I hate to take human life, I'm afraid this time it's necessary. And, you know, there's an argument that, you know what, maybe it is, you know, I mean, first off, these guys, uh, the people driving this uh, truck, uh, 
are basically complicit in these really cruel, inhumane human medical experiments, you know? And so is, is getting machine gunned to death, is that really any worse than they deserve? The other thing, though, is that, and this gets into uh, page 10 here, where Batman basically uh, hangs a uh, one of the monsters, just basically hangs him until he's dead. And again, what we're basically led to believe all through this story is that these monsters are basically just mindless brutes. And so is this, the? I mean, you can't allow something this dangerous to live. So is this really, is this really the worst way to end the threat, you know? And I don't know. I mean, the, you know, these stories weren't really necessarily meant to be, um, I guess, analyzed and picked apart through a moral prism, you know? But it does kind of make you wonder, you know? And then, of course, the story ends with the uh, monster at, at the top of the uh, building getting uh, pretty well perforated with the machine gun on uh, uh, the machine gun on the bat plane. He's basically, Batman is basically just uh, uh, opening fire on him. And it's actually not doing any good because he's wearing bulletproof clothes. So Batman chucks uh, a couple of gas pellets at him. The monster uh, uh, chokes on it. Then he falls off the building and he's dead. And that's pretty much the end of the story. And all in all, I mean, this is, you know, none of these stories are, at least so far, they're not exactly, you know, uh, bright, shiny, happy Care Bears movies. But this one in particular is just pretty fucking dark, you know? It's it's dark. So, I don't know. Anyway, moving right along, the next story that uh, that uh, pops up here, this is, uh, again, it's, there's not an official name uh, for this for this story. A lot of people just call it the cat, but you know, as I say, there's not, there's not, uh, an, an official name that's, uh, mis- that's, uh, listed in, uh, on, uh, the splash page, you know, like the, I can't call it a title page, but basically the splash page that, uh, that, uh, introduces this story. Now, when this story, uh, was, uh, reprinted in, uh, the greatest Batman stories ever told, Volume Two from 1992. It was called simply the Cat, but there, like I say, you know, there's not an official title, so I guess it's it's up to you what you actually want to call this. Um, but basically, it's you know Dick Grayson uh, uh, getting a job. Uh, he's sort of going undercover on an ocean liner so that he can provide uh, security for a, a uh, basically a, a wealthy widow who's traveling around with some really valuable jewelry and all that stuff. And he's basically, Dick is there to make sure that, basically that nothing ever, nothing goes wrong, right? Well, things do go wrong. Uh, some uh, thieves invade the boat they try to steal this uh, uh, Mrs. Traver's uh, really valuable necklace only to find out that it's already been stolen. And uh, Dick basically beats the shit out of, uh, out of the would-be thieves. Uh, Batman arrives on the scene. Uh, and right around then, also Robin arrives on the scene. They, uh, they basically 
beat the shit out of uh, out of the crooks. And on page nine, Batman actually does a little bit of a PSA. He uh, after Robin, you know, beats the tar out of all of the uh, criminals in a, I guess, a three on one fight. It's otherwise a fair fight, except it's three on one. Batman uh, gives a, a PSA saying, well, kids, there's your proof. Crooks are yellow without their guns. Don't go around admiring them. Rather, do your best in fighting them and all their kind. So there's your moral for the day. So later at the uh, uh, costume contest on uh, on board uh, the uh, boat, uh, Batman shows up. He gives everybody back their stolen loot. And then the the guilty party behind the uh, the uh, theft of Mrs. Travers's necklace, she accidentally well she accidentally uh, gives herself away. Uh, she gets unmasked by uh, Batman and Robin, and then Batman, and this is on page twelve. Uh, Batman uh, scrubs the makeup off of her face, and I just love this. <laughs> I love this line. Uh, uh, this woman, the cat, who obviously goes on to become the cat woman, uh, the cat says, let go of me. And Batman replies, quiet or Papa Spank. And <laughs> I don't know why, but you get the idea. You know what? Batman's probably not kidding on that. You know, he probably would go for it. And so the next, the next panel is actually kind of a big reveal. And it shows the cat. She says, well, What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen a pretty girl before? And I guess it's the, this was meant to be kind of a reveal uh, for this, for this story that the real thief of Mrs. Travers' necklace wasn't her shady nephew or her son or whoever the hell that guy was. It was actually this woman here, the cat. And I think that was supposed to be kind of a shocking reveal for the story, you know? So I don't know. Anyway, so Batman and Robin, uh, they get intercepted, or at least Batman and the cat, they get intercepted by um, the the worthless nephew. And he's got a gun. He wants the necklace for himself. Batman smashes him in the face with the necklace. The cat basically tries to win Batman over using feminine wiles. Um, that doesn't completely work. You know, because Batman insists that she's going to be taken in. But it doesn't completely fail either. On the way back to um, the shore, Batman, Robin, and the cat are basically uh, cruising along through through the ocean, I guess, in uh, Batman's little speedboat there. And the cat even asks, why didn't you leave me behind on the yacht instead of taking me to the police yourself? And... Batman says, I've got my reasons. And so whatever the reasons might have been, we'll never completely know. The cat makes a run for it, jumps overboard, and I guess swims back to shore by herself. Uh, Robin tries to uh, chase after her, but Batman accidentally, quote unquote, bumps into him and slows him down. And she's make, she makes a clean getaway in spite of the fact that these guys are driving around in a speedboat and in theory could have caught up with her, but I don't know. So whatever. Batman doesn't really seem all that interested in catching up with the cat though. So hmm, what are we to make of that? I don't know. So anyway, uh, next 
this uh, story, again, doesn't have a uh, an official title. Actually, what am I saying? No, it does have an official title. This one is called The Joker Returns, and it's pretty much right there in the title. What happens? It says, two days after the Joker is captured, he manages to escape and begins to cause more trouble. He brutally murders a police chief, steal, uh, steals a priceless painting, and steals a valuable gem while killing its owner in the process. Bruce Wayne then hears the Joker's next radio broadcast a day later, which he threatens to break into the Drake Museum and steal the Cleopatra necklace. That night, the Joker breaks into the museum and steals the necklace. Dup, dup, da, dum. Batman dramatically enters the museum to stop him, and the two start fighting. The Joker ends up escaping after knocking out Batman. The police wake up from the Joker gassing them and are about to unmask the unconscious Batman when he springs up and escapes. Later, a famous public speaker starts lashing out against the Joker. In return, the Joker threatens to kill him and succeeds. Bruce Wayne then has a meeting with Commissioner Gordon and the two decide to form a trap for the Joker. He falls into their trap and ends up in a chase with the Batman after him. The Joker ends up stabbing himself after trying to maul Batman. In the end, the reader is informed that the Joker will live. And this is actually kind of kind of interesting. You know, typically it it wasn't necessarily a given that one of Batman's villains is going to die by the end of the story, but it was a pretty safe bet. It was rare for Batman to have a return engagement uh with uh one of his villains. But that's what happens here in the same issue in which this villain makes his first appearance. And so what a lot of people surmise from that, I kind of have to agree with them. What a lot of people surmise from all of that is that Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson, Bill Finger, Gardner Fox, and basically whoever else might have been involved with the production and creation of this story... They knew they had something good with Batman and Robin. And they also knew that they had something good with the Joker. And so they maybe didn't want to kill him. Like, there's a... Uh, there's a story, and I, I don't know how true this actually is, but there's a story, apocryphal or not, that says this was originally supposed to be, like, the true death of the Joker. And then the final panel in the story was added in kind of at the last minute when the the characters realize oh my god the joker is still alive and he's coming back so anyway it kind of tells you something that these people may not have realized that they created icons but they still knew a good character when they saw one and then that was that anyway the very last panel in this story is um basically it's a psa for something that's called Robin's Regulars. And the story, or rather the shtick of it, is that people should do, they should basically be like Robin, you know? And do the right thing for the right reasons and help out people who are in need of help. And, you know, basically don't go looking for rewards, just do the right thing because it's the right thing. You know, the little uh, caption here says, why not become one of Robin's regulars? No button or badge is needed. The world will recognize your golden axe without them. Be a Robin regular by being regular. And they even make a um, an acrostic 
out of the name Robin, that Robin stands for readiness, obedience, brotherhood, industriousness, and perhaps most controversial of all, at least in today's world, nationalism. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere near that. So, anyway, point is, this is... I didn't spend as much time covering the, uh, the, uh, the other three stories as I did the first story, but overall, this is a really fun issue. I really dig it. The historical importance of it, I think, kind of speaks for itself. And, actually, I guess I may as well make a clean job of this. The first two, the actual first two pages of this comic, they're a little brief story called The Legend of the Batman, who he is and how he came to be. And it's basically a, uh, a rep, I guess a representation of uh, the origin of Batman with the murder of the Waynes, teary-eyed Bruce realizing that they're dead, making a vow to avenge their deaths, training his mind and, and uh, his body to the absolute peak of human perfection, um, stumbling across a bat, I guess, as a motif that he can use in his mission. And thus is born this weird figure of the dark, this avenger of evil, the Batman. And, I don't know, it's just really good, really like it, ton of fun, it's great. So, and that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week, as that's pretty much the end of this issue. So, bye everybody, I will see you next week. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. 
Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.